I should have done like five, four, three. Should have done that. Well, now you have, and now we have it. Uh, all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Right Stuff. The Story Screen presents exclusive podcast where myself, Mike Burge, and my awesome, spectacular, bodacious co-host, Bernadette Gorman-White. Say hi, Bernadette. Hey, guys. We get together and we talk about the filmography of teen heartthrob director Edgar Wright. We're talking about all of his movies. We've covered the Cornetto trilogy. We've covered his TV series Spaced. And now we are entering into a new world of Edgar Wright, removed from the pesky Simon Pegg Nick Frostiness of yesteryear. <laughs> uh, this episode is going to be about um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the now cult classic film that just turned 10. Yes, yes. It just came a few out. weeks ago. At the, yeah. Actually, I think it turns 10 in the fall, I want to say. Did it come out in the fall? I think so. Well, oh, right. no, no, no. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because I saw it. This is going to either make me look very young or just date me anyway. But uh, <sighs> this came out when I was, you're right, it was at the tail end of my junior year of college. Because I remember mm-hmm. seeing it with some friends who were graduating because I was friends with a lot of seniors. And then I think I came home for the summer and then watched it like four more times in theaters. That's an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. I saw it three times in theaters. Yeah, no, this, uh, August 13th, 2010 is the anniversary date of this movie. Dang. So yeah, it must have been like- that's what it's saying in IMDb. must have been like a fall break thing. I saw it before fall break, came home and watched it with my siblings. Yeah, because I could have sworn that I heard a bunch of people like, Scott Pilgrim turned 10 and I was like, oh damn, we're recording that next. I wish we would have- Well, there we go. This is coming out, I think, on uh, the 16th of- July? So we're a month ahead. Yay! Sure. Okay, great. Good timing. That's good for story screen. (laughs) Yeah, I thought we were late, but now we're early. This is fine. So what are Um, we talking about today? (laughs) We're talking about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It's a really great movie. It's a cult classic. Uh, Was an absolute bomb at the time that it came out. Uh, It just did not, it wasn't really pulling people in. It eventually made its money back barely. Uh, I, there's this great line about, um, Edgar Wright was like really upset and, uh, I guess one of the producers of the movie called him and it said something to the effect of like, not days, years, don't worry about it. Right. Like he could see the magic that was there. Um, and it is kind of unfortunate that this movie, you know, for how tenacious and how energetic and different it is, it didn't really... It didn't really get that kind of, it wasn't really that jolt of energy into the industry like a lot of people thought it would be. And 2010 was also a really stacked year. That was, again, one of the hardest years for us to be able to pick our favorite movie of the year when we did our Besto de Decado for 2020, That it, as it has now infamously become known as. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely like the social network and Scott Pilgrim versus the world were the two that I was really kind of at odds with. Uh, which one I wanted to pick. And I think you were similar as well. Those were the two that were kind of hovering over your head. And I ended up going with the the, the film snob in me, you know, and, and went with Social Network because it's more serious. It's a more serious film. Yeah, you're not alone. I also chose The Social Network in that grand slam of a year, for sure. 
Yeah, I guess I didn't realize. I'm not one to really track box office revenue anyway, mm. but I especially was living in like my own little bubble when this movie came out because I didn't I guess I didn't realize that it didn't do that well at the box office. Um as I said I saw it three times in theater, so I guess I couldn't even help with like all of the multiple viewings that I went, which is very unheard of for me. I don't see movies in theaters more than once typically. Mm. Um but yeah, that one was just crazy good and it was strange too because I had not read the books. I really had no connection to it. And even at the time, I'm like, this is a weird choice for, like, an Edgar Wright picture. So it wasn't even necessarily Edgar Wright drawing me in. It was just the the preview. The, the trailer really pulled me in. I really didn't know much about it at all. Yeah, I was, um, I had uh, read the first three of the Scott Pilgrim books. Uh, the third one being one of my favorites, Scott Pilgrim and the Infinite Sadness. I believe that is the, that's the M.V. Adams uh Todd one. Um, and then when the movie was coming out, I like rushed and read the fourth and the fifth and the sixth had not come out yet uh, at the time that the movie was released or it had like just come out and they have two completely different endings, which Brian Lee O'Malley has said, like that was kind of the whole point is that because he was having a hard time deciding what he wanted the ending to be. And then Edgar Wright was kind of like, well, we can kind of do it both ways and see which one works and which one we like. Um, and so I, I hadn't read the last book when I went and saw the movie, but I was a fan, but you know, not much of like a, of a Scott head where I was like all caught up and anxiously awaiting. I had read the first three, borrowed them from a friend and just never, uh, sought out the other remaining ones that were out and eventually did love the comics, love the movie. Um, Backtracking real quick on the, I pulled up the actual budget and numbers so I can make sure I got this right. So yeah, the movie was made for an estimated $60 million, which they usually bring that number down if the, if the return is not that great. So it probably costs more than that. And it grossed uh, worldwide uh, only $47.5 million. That is crazy to me. Yes, it is. Now it has since made all of it back with... DVD sales, Blu-ray sales, theatrical re-releases, stuff like that. Like this, Scott Pilgrim has become a new age kind of uh, midnight movie, you know. And uh, we we here at Story Screen Beacon Theater also have showed it before as part of our Story Screen 101 series, which Bernadette and myself hosted after watching the movie several times over the course of many weeks and developed a 101 on um, pretty much... I what, what did we end up actually... Putting it down as editing? Yeah, we said we were focusing on editing, which we did, but... We focused in on it, but we also were like, this movie is also really fucking cool, and, like, did all these, like, really fun things. Uh, Yeah, it was definitely a big geek session, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And so we're the perfect perfect hosts to talk about this movie, because we're scholars of it, technically. I mean, yes, that is true. Technically. Technically, you know, not boasting, just like on the pay on paper. Um, we were paid for it, so you could say we, we are paid. professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, we licensed it. We did it. It was good. It's on the on the record. Yeah, there it is. So scholars of at least one Edgar Wright film. Yeah, that's uh crazy. I didn't realize that Brian Lee O'Malley got Game of Thrones before Game of Thronesing was a thing. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that the books weren't complete before. 
the film had an ending, so, which is very interesting it, to me. So the story was done. Like, you know, the the book had either just come out or was like about to come out. So it had been written, it had been printed, it had been it was getting ready for distribution and sale. Like he knew what the ending was, but you know, as everybody knows, you know, kind of jumping right to the to the end of that conversation about the comics is at the end of the comics, uh, Scott ends up with knives. And he leaves with knives. And in the movie, that is not the case. He goes back with Ramona. But the character of Knives is a very different character in the movie than she is in the book. A lot of the side characters, other than Scott, are kind of altered a little bit for speed and stuff like that. Which I think really helps a lot with the energy and kind of like the the egotism of like our main character in the movie and stuff. How we're kind of constantly seeing it through Scott's point of view. And... One of the best things, because in Story Scream 101, one of the things that we always do is like we engage the audience and we ask people like, talk to us, like, what are what what are we feeling about this? Like, even outside of the realm of the lens of editing. And one of the things that came up in that class, but also has kind of come up in a lot of discussions that I, at least I've had about the movie is uh, how kind of unlikable Scott is in the movie. Uh, and I think that that is something that is very much the point not to be like that's the point dude but that's very much he's like uh you know an anti-hero kind of dude who's got a lot of problems that he's got to figure out by the end and some of them he figures out and some of them maybe not but maybe some of them are just who he is and he's gonna have to learn to deal with that and accept it and respect it um i think that the movie outside of all of its amazing energy and fun, cool stuff at the end of the day is like a really good story about finding out who you are and what you want and being nice to your friends and being thankful for the things that you have and the things that you're good at. It's, it's got a very simple, solid, positive message. That's also wrapped up in all this like sugar-coated candy, awesome funness. Yeah. It's gotta be because of just how great it looks that I would say maybe like the first four times I saw this movie, I still did not get into the film. Like at the beginning when you realize like, or you should realize that Scott is terrible, but like it took me a long time to really realize how terrible Scott was. And I think maybe it's something to do with me growing up and becoming more of an adult myself and kind of getting through my own demons when it comes to past relationships. But yeah, like, the older I get, the more I realize, like, wow, how does this movie work so well when you get introduced to your main character who you're su supposed to be rooting for, who is so unlikable? This movie should not work. Yeah. But surprisingly, it does. And I do think it lends itself to giving Edgar Wright, like, a huge high five for making this type of movie really work. Yeah, and I, I don't think you're to be blamed for the, you know, the being just wowed by everything you know like it is a musical roller coaster of a ride and you know it's and they're very simple characters and you're mm -hmm. like oh scott's the good guy so follow scott i want him to win because i him and ramona are cute kind of weird what he did the knives but she's also a little goofy too uh, i don't know like you know it, they they kind of give you enough where you don't really have to think about it too much too hard because things are moving so fast but yeah, the more that you sit down with it, like it's like a person, you know, the longer you know a person, you get to know them a little bit better and you pay attention to like the mannerisms and like the little tiny things that they do that kind of define the type of character or person that they are. 
Uh, with movies, it's really good because the same thing happens every time. I think I've said before that when I was a kid, I used to think that movies would have a different ending depending on how many times you watch them. And I would watch Star Trek Generations over and over and over again to try and make it so Captain Kirk would live at the end. But it never worked. That is still so adorable that that was a thought you had growing up. Same with the Transformers movie, trying to make sure that Optimus Prime didn't die in the beginning so that the rest of the movie didn't happen. Watch that movie over and over again, but... To no avail. Now, hopes were dashed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, but yeah. yeah but oh, I was going to say, I think too, uh, when you're watching it, even though Michael Sarah wasn't a no-name at the time, he was kind of beginning to get some speed and some traction under his feet. But a lot of those other actors were just coming up, which is really exciting. But I think too, when you first start watching it, even as a female, I identify with Scott. Because especially, I think, coming into that movie, as I said, like, junior in college, and actually to paint it even more, the guy that I was kind of interested in, he and I had dated when I was a freshman, and then we broke up for the summer, and he got back together with his ex-girlfriend, and I got, or he met a girl, and I got back together with my ex-boyfriend, Oh. And then... That was a little switcheroo you just did right there. <laughs> you almost got me. I was going to be like, what a piece of shit. He got back together with his ex. And you're like, oh, no, wait, I'm the one that got back together with his ex. Yeah, it was me. And then uh, we lasted until, like, Thanksgiving of my sophomore year. Mind you, this guy is uh, the guy that I was interested in, the college guy, not the high school ex guy. He was a year older than I was. Mm. And, like, pretty much... And his girlfriend, like, didn't go to our school... So, like, she was never really around, and we were still really good friends, and then my ex-boyfriend and I, like, broke up for good, and then, like, I kind of chased him. It was like, oh, will they, won't they, on and off. Everyone's like, you're such good friends, and I was always kind of waiting for him to break up with the other girl, and then, like, Scott Pilgrim comes out. So, I definitely kind of identified with the Scott Pilgrim character, for sure. It was a whole yeah, thing. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, relationships are like a really fun thing. That's why uh, for movies, like that's why romance uh, movies, romantic comedies, romantic movies are like one of the biggest genres that you can apply to pretty much anything because everybody knows what it's like to like somebody, even like in the worst case scenario that you're never liked back by anyone else that you have those feelings for. You still know what it's like to want that and to root for it is like a movies are escape like it's it's that thing where it's like well i i can't get it in my life so i want to root for this character to be able to get it i know it's kind of sad and i i doubt that that actual version exists much i'm sure there's some people that that's happened to but maybe they deserve it fuck them i don't know i don't know i don't <laughs> who know who they are i, don't I know. hope that they find i hope that they find love <laughs> love finds them yes whichever happens first um and I, I think that that's wrapping that around, you know, even just like, you know, the comic book has video game sensibilities. And so when you make a movie out of it, you take a movie that has kind of comic book and video game sensibilities and any movie, any genre like that will do just fine entertaining in an entertaining way. So to actually just kind of tell this coming of age uh, like romantic comedy through that uh, execution is really cool and fun. Like there's there's a very there's a brat pack 
kind of energy to this movie, even though it's, you know, 30 years removed from the Brat Pack era, it's kind of got, you got, you know, you got like all the best friends and all the different characters who kind of fit into the, that St. Elmo's Fire Breakfast Club 16 Candles Pretty in Pink mold. And you're also adding in these musical numbers of just like highly choreographed and stylized, uh, unrealistic, but video game, comic book, manga-esque fight scenes. It's fucking cool. Like, who doesn't like... I don't think I've ever met anybody that doesn't like this movie. Yeah, I don't think I have either. I think I've heard like, like who very, like it? very minor gripes when it comes to this film. Sure, yeah. Which, and when I hear those gripes... um, Namely, like, I have a friend who thinks that the movie is perfectly cast except for Scott and Ramona. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. But then when you think about it, you're like, well, who else would play those roles? Who else sure. would it be other than Michael Sarah or Mary Elizabeth Winstead? I can't think yeah, of it's anyone. A very, it's a very so. Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford type thing where you're just like, oh, I don't even think about. Oh, are they good as those characters? Could somebody else have done something better? And you see Kurt Russell read for Han Solo, and you're like, "What the fuck's going on here?" <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's, it's, and I, I think that Michael Sarah is a very, uh, you know, uh, he looks and sounds and acts very punchable. Yes, um, he's got a very punchable you know, face. That's kind of his mo. I don't think I'm breaking any brains here with that. That's kind of what he goes for. In have you seen Molly's Game? No, not yet. Is he oh, in that? Fu- he is in it, and he is. It's one of the best performances of his career, definitely. But like, it's like he Molly's game is like the poker game with mm-hmm. Jessica Chastain kind of thing, and he plays the Toby Maguire quote unquote character, the character based off Toby Maguire, who is referred to as Player X, uh, who is the worst character in the book like toby Maguire was is notoriously like one of the worst people that played at these games he was very mean he was out for blood he was a very rough poker player apparently he was he said some really nasty stuff neither here nor there i wasn't there i don't know am i supposed my- to know who toby Maguire is like is he a famous poker player or are you talking about the actor was the actor up the for actor, the role no and the then, actor toby Maguire. yeah and then he didn't get the role what happened no, 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 no. Oh, Molly's game yes. is based off of a poker game that this woman Molly ran with all these celebrities and stars oh. throughout the aughts and into the I 2010s. thought it was a completely fictional story. No, no, no. Yes. Cool. And it's like there's characters in it who are like Leonardo DiCaprio. And like you can't say their names, obviously, right. but there's stand-ins for these. And Tobey Maguire was like, he's like the bad guy of the book. He's the one who's like... I have the most power. I have the most control over you, woman. So I will do whatever I want in this game. Because if I'm not here, no one, you don't have a game. That kind of thing. Oh. And Michael Sarah plays that character. And it is, you want to reach into the screen and shake him. Like, he is so fucking good in that. The movie is a slog. Uh, it's good. I really like it, but it's like two and a half hours long. You got some real sexy Idris Elba in there. Mm-hmm. That might anchor you down. <laughs> uh, Je- Jessica Chastain is just on fire, and it's kind of a performance that she usually doesn't do. Where I just watched Crimson Peak as well, okay. and that's your that's your typical Jessica Chastain kind of like staring off into negative space for a while. And then doing like a baller ass line reading on something. You're like, God, that's why they pay her the big bucks. Yeah, they like to put fair-skinned women in corsets in films they're just like this is where they live 
You gotta do this it. This is their wheelhouse. Just you put love to Jessica see it. Chastain in a corset, yeah. make her wear some frilly dresses, put her in a yeah. period piece. Yeah. It's a, and what's a Mia uh Wakawi Kaska? I don't think I've ever said her name correctly. But yes, from uh, Alice Mia, in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mia Wakawi Kaska or uh, Mia Wazowski. Fuck it. <laughs> Let's do um, it. Mike Wazowski. Mike Wazowski. She's, um, <laughs> you know, it, she's like directly from Alice in Wonderland jumping right on into uh, Crimson Peak. Uh, Crimson Peak. Pretty cool movie. Very silly. Into it. Also have not um, seen that, but I would like to. It's I'm I'm continuing as we're slowly moving towards, you know, getting busy again and doing all of that stuff. I'm trying to catch up on some a couple things that I had marked down very early on that I haven't gotten to yet. I've been doing a lot of reading and listening to a lot of music and playing some video games. I've been kind of altering mediums for a bit. Now I'm trying to jump back in. I just started watching The West Wing for the first time. Loving it. Elizabeth Moss showed up in the fifth episode as the president's daughter. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to say she would have had to be young. She's like 16 or something. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen her she, act in anything that young. She's cute as a button. I'm telling you, she used to have these little cheeks. Oh, my goodness. She used <laughs> to have these little cheeks. And I'm like, oh, my God, Elizabeth. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, Crimson Peak I picked up on. I still need to see Magic Mike XXL. I'm watching that soon. Um but yeah, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got all that. It's got all the Hellboy energy. Like a without gothic horror. The, yeah, it's got all the all the Hellboy like energy and stylization without the cool, and it's got the Shape of Water kind of melodrama without the uh, caring about the characters. I uh, guess. Yeah, is, I didn't yeah, hear gonna, great things about that movie, but it looked really cool, like to look at. It's it's definitely better now that it's removed like five or so years and that you know that Guillermo del Toro eventually went on and justly won his best director and now he's one of the most sought after directors and now Tom Hiddleston is like huge even though he was just popping at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's fun. Uh, it's got like red goop in it. I'm always into goop in movies no matter the color. I'm colorblind <laughs> when it comes to goop. You got the goop in there. I'm into it. <laughs> Um, even, even the actual literal goop, Gwyneth, you know, any of the Iron Man movies, I'll stop. I'll stop. Anyway, Michael Sarah, very punchable face. Well, it's funny you got to Crimson Peak because one of Michael Sarah's most recent roles, which was crazy bonkers, was he played Lucy and Andy from Twin Peaks. He played their son in Twin Peaks, The Return, and his name is Wally Brando. And he's in like one scene. And he's wearing this ridiculous, like, newsboy cap and this leather jacket. And he comes to, like, visit his parents. And he has this, like, one weird monologue. And then that's, like, pretty much it. He's just bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I think Michael Sarah seems like a pretty cool dude. Yeah, I'd imagine he'd be a fun hang. But I would be remiss to say that even watching Molly's game, did he come across as an adult? He's just so youthful. Will he ever be an adult uh, he's got He's got that kind of, he's got that, that childlike energy kind of like you know um uh michael j fox you know Mm -hmm. it's just like it's it feels like for 15 years he's not really aging out like that's just what he looks like Mm -hmm. and i don't know unless he ever goes through like something where he like put like gets cast in a marvel movie or something like he's just got to get some meat on his bones you know yeah i feel like 
you know, when Grease came out, people watched Grease at the time and they were like, yes, I love this. And then you introduce someone else to Grease and they're like, these are supposed to be high school students. I, yes. I, I feel like Michael Sarah is the type of actor you could put him in a high school movie and you're like, oh, yeah, super bad. He's he's never left high school. <laughs> like He's still yeah. in high school. He could totally he could believable. I was thinking the other day, too, about like 21 Jump Street and they make that joke in there and it's like they look like you guys are in like your late 20s what are you doing in high school and i was like wouldn't it be fun to do a tom cruise comedy where tom cruise goes undercover as a high school student Ooh, i don't know i feel like i have very mixed feelings on that knowing his like scientology upbringing yeah i don't know dude i'm into it (laughs) let's see let's see where the chips fall i mean he is very um, youthful looking he could pull off the looks probably yeah a little That'd bit. That'd be the joke. They'd be like, you're Tom Cruise. Like, everybody <laughs> knows he's Tom Cruise. Like, he's playing Tom Cruise, playing a spy, pretending to be a high schooler for some reason. Come up with a... That's what Hollywood does. I'm not yeah. coming up with that. That's what they get paid to do. I mean, for a Tom Cruise movie, it doesn't even have to be a good script. Like... No. 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 <laughs> they'll just... No. They'll totally put money behind it, no matter what. No. Toss him toss off a cliff. Attach him to the side of a plane. Fine. Good. Who cares? Great. Cha-ching. <laughs> yes, make, definitely. You make, you'll, you'll make more than $47 million worldwide, I'll tell you that. Yeah, you will, sadly. Um, but Michael Sarah, punchable face. Mm-hmm. Good Scott. Um, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead uh, is a smokehouse. And she is also full of tood. Mm-hmm. And I think she's fucking perfect for this version of Ramona, because... The version of Ramona from the comics that I recall is pretty much those things, but also a little mean, Mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. She's a little bit meaner, and it's kind of like it's kind of like an influx of she just got out of a of an abusive relationship with Gideon, and now she's kind of bringing that over a little bit. Uh, And they kind of make some of her decisions to not tell Scott right away about certain things a little bit more. Was that methodical or why don't you like in the movie, they kind of just reveal it as like, do you want to give me a list of these guys so that I at least know what's going on? And she gives them the list so that, but there's only three left at that point. So it's (laughs) like, uh, I I think that they work great as these characters. And I, I think I'm probably going to keep falling on that side with a lot of the, actors in this movie just because like i can't imagine anybody else doing them because i've seen these guys do it so much you know like right even all the all the exes are just like great yeah i definitely agree it i can't remember uh, a time before scott pilgrim to be honest but sure. <laughs> um like the fact that mary elizabeth winstead was like a no one like a nobody before this film at least for me like i had no idea who she was wasn't tracking her at all and now she's had, like, this great trajectory. Although she does kind of get, like, pigeonholed now. Because I feel like with watching the latest uh, Harley Quinn movie, uh, Birds of Prey, she was awesome in that. But she was kind of just more of, like, an extension of Ramona to me. When I was watching the film, I had a hard time remembering, like, oh, yeah, this isn't Ramona. This is a different character. Because she was just another, like, badass chick fighting and, like, sticking up for herself. Have like a sordid backstory. You find out about that. She's kind of dealing with the, all these past demons. So yeah, I think it'd be interesting because I loved her in Fargo. She was in a season of Fargo as well on FX. She's great in that show. And that's the first time I've watched her. I'm like, oh, this is a good actress. 
Yeah. Have you seen um, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane? No, I haven't seen that yet. This is just becoming the podcast where it's like, nope, haven't nope, seen that. Nope, nope, nope haven't seen okay. that. <laughs> like, so you, can't, you, can't, you can't see them all. You can't see them all. Uh, but I would I, like uh, to. Great. That's a great one. Uh, great great Mary performance. Uh, great John performance. Mm-hmm. You know, Mary and John, really good in that movie. Good friends. Well, there are only like, what, like four or five actors in that entire film? I think that there's literally three oh, in dang. the entire movie. I think so. John living all at home by him, by himself in that house, and then uh, just chilling. Two possible captives that he has. Actually, you know that's probably a real good movie to rewatch during all this uh, quarantine time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh too good. Maybe maybe wait till maybe we can yeah. leave our houses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even though everyone well, else is already doing it, but. With with all the uh, with all the other you know and kind of just like getting the actors out of the way and stuff and we can talk start talking about um, the man of the hour and all the stuff that he really brought to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we have like from the evil exes are like three or four like actual superheroes now like Brie Larson is Captain Marvel, Brandon Ruth even at the time of this which is really funny is that he was Superman and Chris Evans I think is in a Marvel movie. I think so. Yeah. I think he's got a couple standalones, you know, some movies named after him. Uh, you know. He might be God like the bless, first of, of something. Yeah. I don't think he was the second. He he got to be the second evil X, but he's the first Avenger. He's the first Avenger. That's who he's he moving He's moving up in the world. Captain First Avenger. Yes. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he is an absolute just delight in this movie. Uh, I, I I love pretty much all the evil exes that really kind of get some some shit to chew on. You know, the Katianaga twins don't really get a whole lot. Theirs no, is like the don't. one from the comics that's really isolated down, which makes sense because it takes place over the course of several days. And there's like robots and like it could be a little too much. And what they do put in its place is like visually one of the coolest scenes in the movie. It's completely different. They... I love how they make all the different fights different yes. feeling and they're about different things and they're being fought in different ways. Um, on this recent rewatch, though, I was just uh, charmed every second by Chris Evans as <laughs> Lucas Lee. Every single second that he's on screen, I'm just like, good for this guy. Great. Um, and I maintain, too, and I said this at the 101, um, uh, I maintain that... F- the entire uh, third X Todd sequence from arriving at the venue to like when he's defeated is some of the, my favorite like 10 minutes in any movie of all time. It is so perfect for all these different reasons. Step by step. It just keeps getting better and better. All the stuff in like the green room is just some of the coolest looking and sounding and acted and shot things I've ever seen. It's so fucking cool. That whole little part. And the whole movie's cool. But that's like, every time I'm watching the movie, I'm like, I cannot wait for that part. And that's probably my biggest, my personal biggest gripe with the movie is that I do think that it peaks at that moment and then slowly kind of starts to descend and you're not even halfway through. I still love, you know, the Roxy stuff and the Katianaga twins and the Gideon stuff. But I really think like that top part and the fact that it's also sandwiched right next to the Chris Evans part, you're just like, this is a fucking, this is great. And I, that's probably my one biggest beef with it is that I think that it, it, it hits masterpiece 
at about halfway through and there's really nowhere there's no way to maintain that uh especially with the kind of whimsical nature of like what they're actually doing yeah perhaps it is because of your relationship to say the actor chris evans or the fact that that scene for you just like does it um because i would say i i agree with you but yeah i feel like every time after the katianagi twin scene from there on for me I don't check out. I'm still with the picture. And I love Jason Schwartzman. But for whatever reason, I find the rest after the amp versus amp battle to be the part where I can sometimes check out a little bit. Like if I'm putting the movie on in the background, I'm usually kind of like glued to the screen until that moment. And then I'm like, oh, Jason Schwartzman, Uh, chaos theater. Oh, they're going to fight. Okay. (laughs) And Knives is going to come back. Like, even today, preparing for this podcast, I got up and started preparing for the podcast during that section of the film. Because I'm like, oh, I I know this. Like, I knew the rest of the movie, too. But it's uh, the rest of the time, I am, like, glued to that screen. So I feel like that also might be something like, this is from, like, rewatching too. The first time I saw it, I was enthralled the whole time. I wanted to know what was happening. Absolutely. This is from, like, having watched it so many times, I think it's because... And talking to talking to your sense, because I kind of agree with you, I do feel that way about the ending. I think that it's because there is a major um uh lowest point indicator where it's like we we stop the movie for about five minutes to let you know like Scott feels bad about everything that's going on and he's lost, he's at his lowest point, and here we go towards the climax. So you have this kind of five minute break from this really energetic movie that even during like the quieter moments has been filled with very quick dialogue and all this stuff and i think one of the big things about chaos theater is that once you've seen it the first time you know that kind of the stuff that you're watching for the next 10 minutes doesn't matter because it's going to restart and it's going to just happen again much quicker and then you're going to get the actual ending sure and it's not to it's not to lessen the things that do happen in that because it's important because that's where the lessons are learned but yeah, I, I think that that might kind of add to it a little bit, maybe like that kind of recipe in there where you also know you're getting to the end of the movie and you're kind of like, oh, I am exhausted from how cool this has been. Yeah, definitely. Also, maybe like the fact that the band is broken up, that kind of takes away some of the elasticity of this film. Because as soon as Scott like leaves the band, he was like, well, I can't participate in this anymore. I can't sign with G-Man Gideon Graves. And then you're just kind of like, okay, uh, I love you, young Neil now known as Neil, but I don't really care about this band anymore because you're really traveling with the band. You're like on tour with the band up until that Mm -hmm. point. And then you're like, oh, okay. Well, the stakes are really lowered at that point, even though the stakes are really high because he's trying to get Ramona back. No, I I totally hear where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, just getting older when you're watching this movie, you're like, dude, I know you're like really into Ramona, but like, this is very toxic. Good for you for like chasing it and trying to get it. But still, it's like, oh man, when you watch this, you're like, kids, learn to like leave your exes. <laughs> like, kids, yeah. Sometimes things don't work for a reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's like one of the things that's so good about the comics uh, is this kind of conversation around like, you know, they put it, they put the line in the movie because it's just such a fucking good line and it's a great moment in the movie where it's like, you're just another evil ex waiting to happen. That's, uh, that is in play a lot in the last book where it's like Gideon even offers Scott, like, join the league. Like, come on in. 
you know? But, like, in the movie, they play it off as more like, oh, Gideon's such a dick. Like, he doesn't even care about the League. Like, oh, he did it. He, it, they make it seem like, oh, he just did it when he was drunk and just, like, put it together. He calls it the guild at one point. Like, he doesn't give a shit. He just, like, goes back on it. And which is funny and kind of matches the Gideon that they're kind of going for and that type of relationship. Um, but I, I think that the ending of the movie loses a little bit of the oomph from the comics just because it, they've been focusing so much in on how Scott is relating to everybody else as opposed to throughout the books, you're kind of relating to how everyone is relating to Scott and they don't, and it's okay. Like that is not a knock at all. Like you cannot do that with a movie. No. Like you need to isolate it down. And I think they structured it down. They cut things from the books that I absolutely loved, but I get it. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings thing where I'm like, no good. These are already very long movies. You do not need to release a four hour cut of return of the King. Nope. No, no, you don't have to... Well, now I have to watch it. And I watched it. I, and it was long. I have also watched all of those extended cuts. Yeah, they're good. I mean, those are the only cuts. Let me... <laughs> let me... Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> nothing, gets, nothing gets me going faster than when I'm watching a like video review of Lord of the Rings or, they, or a video review and they bring up Lord of the Rings, the opening of Fellowship of the Ring, and they use the extended cuts opening with Bilbo in the house... And they just, they don't even bring up that that's the extended one. They're like, in the opening credits of The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm like, damn fucking straight. <laughs> that's where that happened. It's true. I love it. Yeah. God, I want to watch those movies. <laughs> I know, those movies are great. Um, before we get into, like, the Edgar Wright part of this discussion, yeah, we never uh, gave a shout out to Evil X number four, because um, I didn't really know who Mae Whitman was at the time. Yeah. But then I got big into parenthood it's kind of like a running joke that i always have to be watching at least one very sappy over emotional television show that like sure. otherwise i wouldn't be watching and parenthood for me was during that time period and she was great in that show but she's also great as roxy richter i just love that character but the thing i was gonna look up in the comics before getting on this podcast and i forgot maybe you can help me does she die by orgasm in the book as well? I was trying to remember. Uh, I can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, it does seem like a very comic booky thing. I would hope uh, just you know the that framework of everything. Yeah, I think that that's kind of what's going on. Yeah, because when you've seen this movie as many times as you and I have, gosh, I've seen this movie probably ten times in the past year alone. I I feel. I mean, I watched it like five times for the 101 right like i was taking that thing apart pretty intensely so yeah now it's kind of like we're at like the nitpicking stage where it's like we're trying to realize or pick up on things that maybe we hadn't thought about before or think about things in a different way and Mm. yeah like this past time watching it just like a few hours ago it's just like oh yeah very problematic that the one female ex dies by her sexuality (laughs) i was like i don't know how crazy i am about that but if it was in the books then I'm like, all right, if, I hope it was in the books, that it wasn't just written in. It's very funny. It very mm-hmm. much so works. But I'm like, mm, yeah. I don't know if I'm crazy I, for it. I had, when I was rewatching it the other night for this, I had a really weird thought that is very much a stretch. 
And I was kind of hesitant to bring it up because I haven't really like fleshed it out enough. But here's because there's some there's some weird problematic stuff in the movie just because it was made 10 years ago. And we're in like a hyper kind of woke culture where, you know, things don't need to be punished for not being woke. But because we're kind of used to it's the same way, like when I watch movies that were made 15 years ago and people are like shaking hands and sharing spoons. I'm like, stop that now like in this like i'm like don't do don't touch him yeah we're gonna have um, like covid19 flashbacks here in the next few years we're like don't give anyone a hug yeah, what are you doing uh the zoom age yes. um the uh so have you ever heard the seven evil x's is the seven deadly sins theory i have heard about this but i haven't actually i need to look I'll go rewatch the movie the, after this and don't, view it through that it's lens. It's bullshit. Okay. It's bullshit. It, it's some of them line up and then you're like, yeah, but then who are the twins? Like all I have left over is Wrath and yeah. Sloth. What do I do now? Like it's, it doesn't make any sense because they really don't have any characterization. Not uh, so, so in the book, in, in the books, they're more like Sloth and stuff because they, they use uh, robots to do their fighting instead of them. All this different hmm. stuff. So here's my take on the here's my version of that kind of bullshit take on the representation of the evil exes. I think that they are all taboos. So going in order, Matthew Patel is race. Um, Lucas Lee is um, kind of like fame or like coolness, popularity, okay. uh, which that's one of the weakest ones. But then there's uh, Todd is. Um, morals like different things in people that you can see and he's morals like he's a vegan those are my morals uh roxy is uh sexual orientation sexuality um the twins are just that the twins the taboo of twins like oh they look alike they're tricky and blah 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 Mm. and then gideon is um like abusive power in a relationship power in general but also just abusive relationships uh did i skip somebody No, no that's all of them you got him so and, and each of them kind of have this, like, Matthew uh, Matthew Patel shows up and, you know, he's dancing along to, like, his culture's music. And he's got, like, he says, like, lines like infidel. And he does all these very characteristic mannerisms, which I never really noticed before because, again, I'm caught up in the energy of all of this. Right. And then there's, like, all the weird stuff where it's, like, no one has a problem that, uh, that you know... Ramona and Roxy were together for a short stint in college. Like nobody's being like, what? That's fucking weird. But he is like, what? I can't even believe that. What? And you got that great line. I'm a little bi furious. You know, it's, it's all these little tiny mannerisms where almost the characters are all revolving around their characteristics that they've been given as exes, obviously. Right. And I was like, what's the connection between them? How did he choose them? And I think that it, because there is like there's a sexuality thing, there's a race thing, there's um all the other like vegans and people who are famous, like they all have like these different kind of overbearing characteristics. And I was like, maybe this is just in a way of how we in culture kind of talk about these different taboos and stuff. Very loose, very loose, but that was something because like, there was some things in the Matthew Patel and the Roxy stuff in 2020 woke vision where you're just kind of like. She dies by an orgasm? Uh, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, poetically. And he gives it to her? Uh, right. Without her consent? Like, what is uh, this? <laughs> okay, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. It was weird watching it through that lens this time. And yeah, I'm glad because, you know, it's good to pick up on new things every time that you watch something. Yeah. That means it's very well made if it's not all at face value the first time you watch a piece of work. But yeah, watching it this time, I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. And uh, that kind of gives a little bit of an insight, what you just explained. Because I had to look up too. uh, I was like, wait, well, is Brian Lee O'Malley, is he gay? But then I looked it up, and he was married to a woman, and they got divorced in 2014. Oh, could be. So I I was just like, okay, well, he's not gay, because there is a lot of gay conversation happening, much more so even in the books than in uh, the film with, like, Wallace, and then you have Stephen Stills in the book, who also ends up with a man. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't think he's ignorant. I don't think O'Malley is doing anything wrong. And I don't think he's poking fun at anything in, like, a bad way. Right, yeah. I think it's more of, like, I, I a... Think, I think he's, like, having fun with it. Yeah. But he's not making fun of it. And I think, too, when you're reading the books or watching the film, you're not meant to think, like, oh, as an adult who has created these young characters, this is how this omnipresent, like, author feels about these things. He is writing through the lens of, like, This is how an early adult, like a young adult in their early 20s, views the world. And it's not great, because most of the time when you're a young adult, you're not great. You're still saying a bunch of stuff that you shouldn't be saying. So, yeah, that helps me, like, come to terms with some of these issues with the characters. Because even this time, I thought it was so weird to watch the movie, uh, to look at Scott's ex, Kim, who's the drummer in the band. And at one point, she calls Scott a retard, which this is the first time I picked up on that, too. And I was like, that's so weird that they had that character say that when you're Mm -hmm. not supposed to not like Kim. You're supposed to like Kim. She's angry, but you're not supposed to see any fault in her. But then Mm -hmm. this time I was like, oh, no, like, shouldn't have said that. Why did they write that line into the film? It was very weird. And that's, you know, and that's a very, that's a very uh, weird one, you know, because up until like even a few years ago, like I had very close, cool friends of mine that would use that word from time to time. And I'd be like, dude, like, just don't use that word. That's fucking stupid. Stop it. Just say stupid. Right. Just say stupid. Don't you see what you're doing when you're not saying stupid, but you're saying that instead? Like, just stop it. Like, what are you doing? You're being stupid. Um, That's a weird one like that. And that's definitely one that like, you know. You go talking about the Brat Pack, you go back like 30 years and they're saying like a bunch of crazy shit in those movies where you're just like, I. Yeah. But for a movie that does have like a lot of landmines with all of these different things going on, it is impressive that it doesn't really, it doesn't really kind of trip any of those in kind of like a, an overly offensive way. Give or take a couple, uh, a, a couple small ones that kind of pop up and you're like, uh, guys, probably shouldn't use that. And, you know, I, I don't know if we should use the same, you know, the, uh, the, their kids, that's the way kids talk kind of thing, because it's written by adults, and adults are going to watch it, and kids are going to watch it too, so you can set a little bit of an example. Sure. Like you said, like, we're not supposed to not like Kim, so I don't think it was a conscious choice. Right, which makes it maybe even worse. Because, uh, like, sure. if yeah. if Scott were to use that word, I'd be like, of course, Scott's an asshole. Like, of course he would use that. But the fact that Kim, a character you're supposed to like and empathize with, uses that word, it's just like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> that was, like, one misstep 
in the start. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even notice when she said it. I'm trying to place it in my head. What when was it? It is right before they go to Julie's party and Scott's like, "What are we doing?" And she was like, "We're going to a party, retard." Oh. And he was like, "I yes. thought you and Julie broke up." Steven's like, "Yeah, well, we did right, bro- right. break up." I remember that. Yeah. It's like yeah. very quick. Okay. Not to not to make you stew in it and be like, so what was that actually? Can you point that out to me? That part that you found upsetting? Yeah, I was just trying to like figure out, oh, is it like after they met knives or something? Okay, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And as I said, again, like the fact that it took me, what, like probably my 20th time watching this movie to be like, oh, sure, that's an issue. It just goes to say like, this is a very minor thing that, mm-hmm. you know. At, at this point, it's, we're just kind of getting down to brass tacks. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting that you bring up that kind of, you know, 10 years ago said something that was just like, people know what that means, but now it's kind of like, eh, frowned upon. Like, I'm watching The West Wing right now, written by, uh, like, living cocaine bag, 90s Aaron <laughs> Sorkin. And, you know, his dialogue is so fast, but it's also 1999. So they're saying a lot of stuff that some of it's like, eh, uh, you just making a joke about somebody being gay, but they're not gay. But like, you keep making a joke about it. But it the it moves so fast. The dialogue is so like surgical and just keeps going that you really don't have time to be upset about it because you have to start paying attention. So unless you're upset enough where you're like, I'm done with this. I'm not watching this, which I'm not going to because it's a an insanely well acted and well written show. Um, it, it it really is interesting that things just kind of slip in there that you might not notice in movies that you watch all the time uh, because you're just so caught up in it. Right. And I mean, maybe too, like in the books, Kim is a much more, well, I think in the film, she comes across as a very damaged character and she's meant Mm -hmm. to, but in the books, she's even more heavily damaged and you get more into the Kim backstory and just how much her relationship with Scott and her breakup with Scott really did affect her. Yeah. And so, yeah, she really doesn't like Scott. And that's a no. very low blow for her to call him that word. Um, and yeah, I you don't see her direct that language at anyone else during the film. Like, pretty much all of her negative energy is just forced in one direction. Mm. And so I can't even necessarily strike it for, like, a character development issue. Because I think it does make sense for her character to say something like that to Scott. Mm-hmm. But it, it definitely made me a lot more critical watching it. Now, as you said, like things that used to maybe just skirt by you, you're just like, oh, no, I'm paying attention now. <laughs> I'm yeah, waking no, no, up no. to this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, right. That's uh, one of the other things, too, like watching The West Wing. And it, this is not only The West Wing's fault. It's just what I'm watching right now. And I'm noticing the things is like, you know, the the, the lighting for black actors is just like complete dog shit back in the 90s. And you're just like, wow, Rob Lowe is just perfectly lit. And the key light in that is not doing the attorney general any favors in the scene right now because his the, the left side of his face just looks like a black void. And I watch things on a projector. So when, when something's dark, it's a void. Like I can't see his eye. He looks menacing. Oh yeah. I've read a really good article maybe like two years ago, three years ago, when Issa Rae started coming out with Insecure. And, like, Mm -hmm. someone actively wrote an article saying, like, oh, now we're learning, because we're getting black creators, how to light black faces and black bodies. And, yeah, it's crazy that, you know, 
10, 15 years ago, we used to watch television or films. Be like, this is fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is tolerable. We'll accept this. Uh, but Scott Pilgrim. Yes. <laughs> uh, really fun movie. Edgar Wright's kind of mentality of, you know, that fast editing and everything like that, that he does for comic effect. And we should state like, you know, this, this movie is sandwiched between in, within the Cornetto trilogy. He makes Hot Fuzz, he makes, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, and then he makes, um, The World's End. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with all of those like sporadic, uh, comic editing tricks and stuff that he does, it, it really lends itself well to this like kind of smash cutting, smash zooms, dolly with title cards popping up with sound effects. Like it's it works perfectly. Like it's almost as if he is the person that you would hire to make a superhero movie that has comic elements, mm-hmm. which we'll get to later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and it's his energy in it is baffling. It's a masterfully directed and edited movie. It's why we picked it for our editing uh, kind of talk. And also because we love the movie so much and wanted to find a reason to talk to more people about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, everything about it from the lighting, the sound design, the post-production, whether it's editing, CGI, all of that. It's just fucking perfect. The stunt work is great. The casting is fantastic. It, this is a showcase of all of the things a director needs to be really talented at being really talented at them. Oh, yeah. It's crazy to take something from a comic book that was pretty well liked at the time, pretty cult, pretty niche, but still well received. And it's so funny to think back to like Disney films or just very popular works of animation and think like, oh yeah, there's a core team of animators who bring this to life. And because this replicates the comic book so well, you sometimes forget that a costume designer had to pick all of those awesome clothes and make that amazing costume design wardrobe that all of those characters have. You forget that there has to be a stunt team choreographing these fights. You yeah, for- well, I mean, they're nothing without their stunt team. They're nothing without their stunt team. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like Edgar Wright was just getting baked in his winnie. He had to like actually help and do things. God damn it. It's such a fucking good role. It's Get very funny. Get in my winnie. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you forget. And then like the fact that all of the main actors who were in Sex Bob-omb learned those instruments and yeah. Beck came in and helped write some of the songs. It's so fucking cool. It's just right? like, it's just like, it's so fucking cool. Like, and it's so effortless because you watch the film and you forget all of those things. Like there are no yes. themes showing at all yes. for the it's, making it's of this the film. It's the Mad Max Fury crazy. Road thing. Yeah. Uh, with like Mad Max Fury Road, yes. George Miller like created this absolute masterpiece where everything, all of these these thousands of people that were working on this movie in in synchronicity, synchronicity, syn- 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 you just broke synchronized, yeah, yeah, I broke, you, I broke, you broke my brain. <laughs> syn- syn- Synchronization, syn- synchronization, synchronicity. Uh, they they're have all, synergy. All, they have synergy, and they're working together well. Yes, uh, in sync. Let's and, just shorten and it's, it. It's one of those. It's one of those conversations because then it won all the Academy Awards for all of these different departments, and then George Miller did not win Best Director, and it really brought up that conversation, that really good conversation that lies on the other end of the one-liner joke. Well, who do you think told them to do all that? You know, like that's... Who is overseeing these are talented... this entire project. Exactly. Yeah. Like he's the one that went, 
you know, a costume designer is going to come up with 15 great fucking ideas for one thing because they're a fucking costume designer. The director needs to look at that and go, is that going to work with what those 15 people over there are also doing? You know, and that's how it all works together. That's a good director. And Edgar Wright, and we're going to get into this even more, especially with Baby Driver. There's just so much going on in Scott Pilgrim. And I think it's much more visually apparent that it could like fall apart at any time and go off the wheels at any time. And I think have him being such a knowing so much about the post-production angle and the pre-production angle from just being in love with making movies and how movies are made and how some of his favorite movies have been made has kind of this very hands-on approach of being able to make sure that everything is going to be tangible in the end, even if it looks like it's so ecstatic and energetic. Oh, yeah. I mean, having to rope in essentially like seven different color palettes for the seven Ah, evil exes alone and knowing that these things have to eventually meet. You just can't have like a Matthew Patel short film and then a Lucas Lee short film. Like they have to butt up against each other at some point and making it all coherent is wildly impressive. I think we have like a really – it's strange. I can't think of one good film that accurately shows – what makes a great director? I feel like you get those stereotypical shots of like the director sitting in the chair with the name in the back, with the cone and saying action and telling an actor how to say a line. But you don't really get to see the director like walking around being like, yes, I check off on this character's costume. I check off on this lighting shot. I am making sure that the cast is fed. I've made sure that I have people underneath me I'm delegating these roles to make all of this work and I'm picking the best people and I'm making sure that they're taken care of too, not just the actors. I just feel like all of that's really important. But what you really just see in film and television, when you see a director on screen, they're just like telling an actor how to say something. Sure. Yeah. It's weird. It's like a very multifaceted thing that I think people know about. I'm not saying people are stupid and don't know what a director is doing, but I think it's easily forgotten how much work that is. The same, like we just said a few minutes ago, where it, sometimes it can be easily just forgotten that there are like 2,000 people behind this thing that you're watching for an hour and a half, which is something that I always take into mind whenever I'm criticizing something. It's like a lot of people put energy into this. Where do I draw the line on where my critique is landing? Um, I also, I tell a lot of people, uh, I took, you know, you know, you and I have gone to film schools on on different levels, mm-hmm. and one of the best things I ever learned about how movies are made did not come from a specific class or a book that I was assigned. Uh, it's going back again to the Lord of the Rings extended editions. Each of those movies have a six-hour documentary on them that is all about how they made the movie, and it goes into, like, the most minute things and I used to watch those documentaries. I'd put them on in the background while I was script writing or doing other things. And I would re-watch those documentaries and you would learn like, well, what does an associate producer do? Or what, what does it mean like a consulting coordinator? Like what are, what are these aspects? And you learn all of that shit in these documentaries. Sometimes I have a hard time remembering what the difference between sound editing and sound mixing is. But... Uh, that's just because that's more of a bit at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I actively choose not to cement that knowledge in my head. 
Well, it's just so funny because when we talk about it, it's in the context of, well, can we guess what the Academy is going to get wrong this year? <laughs> you know, like yes. they don't know what they're talking about. We know what we're talking about. But how badly are they going to screw it up? <laughs> yeah, I think we've learned if it's got cars that go vroom vroom, that's the one that's going to win. Yes. <laughs> Which I saw Ford v Ferrari, by the way, finally. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah. Okay. Pretty good. Yeah. Good sound is mixing. <laughs> good sound mixing. A good Matt Damon's a peach. Yeah, a good use of what your two hours. You're glad you spent two hours on that. <sighs> I think it's more than that. Oh, yeah, that? it's a it's a hefty movie. It's mm. like two hour forty minutes, something like that. It's it's in there. It's up there. Yeah. But Matt Damon's an absolute doll. I like him a lot. Yeah, he's pretty good. I. I just got done rewatching the I rewatched the Bourne trilogy. Okay. The trilogy. There's no other ones. It's the trilogy. I mean Great ending with Ultimatum, no reason to go back. Isn't he coming back? I mean, no. bit aside, he came back and okay. it was not it was it wasn't not great. good. The magic had been lost. He was he was, he was born again and we didn't, didn't work. <laughs> no. Yeah, I really always kind of forget about Matt Damon, which is like a really terrible thing to say, even though I've liked a lot I of his think films. That that's that's his secret power is that he he's Matt Damon. You can see him as Matt Damon, but he is also really good at being able to uh, push back into a character, not like somebody like Tom Cruise or Leonardo DiCaprio, who are just like so star studded famous. Like it's hard to remove. You're watching Leonardo DiCaprio try and survive in the woods. And I yeah. feel like Matt Damon is really good at like turning down or up the level of cocky Boston dickiness that he has <laughs> sure. to just become like a different character because you've never seen him do that exact level. Yeah, I know you you stand by this argument. I can agree with you on Tom Cruise just because mm. I know how batshit crazy he is in the real world. Sure. That like when I watch a movie, it's like, well, I know you are crazy. So <laughs> you're going to be crazy in this movie and you are Tom Cruise. But I feel like Leonardo for me personally... I don't have that issue with him. I feel like he I, plays the role when I forget I'm watching Leo. Sure. But. I I think that's also maybe this that was kind of an opinion that I had pre Rick Dalton. Yeah. You know, and I think it's and Rick Dalton is very much kind of like him looking at like himself and kind of seeing some of these same kind of like uh critiques that I kind of have on and I you know, I have a couple just there's a couple Leonardo DiCaprio movies in there back to back where I'm just kind of like, I feel like you're playing the same character. You're good at it, but you know, there's like the revenants and the stuff like that. But I think that's definitely an opinion. Maybe I should, uh, take a mic, uh, a microphone, oh, fuck a magnifying glass. Synchrosity. <laughs> I think you meant to say microscope. So I think that was fine. Microscope. A microscope magnifying glass. Too? Yeah. A micro glass. Yeah. Sure. Any that's of what this. A microscope is. It's a micro glass. Fuck it. <laughs> anyway. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. A lot of fucking fun. Yeah. In the context of this Right Stuff podcast series that we have been doing, whenever I've watched Scott Pilgrim versus the world in the past, whether it had a purpose or not, whether it was just for fun or for doing the 101, um, I've always really watched it divorced from the rest of his filmography, from the rest of the stuff that he has directed. But it's been really cool to go back and revisit, especially for The World's End, because I had only seen that the one time prior to watching it for this podcast. It was really cool to um, see that he he made Hot Fuzz, which some people see as his magnum opus, his, like, best work. 
And you wouldn't be wrong. You could say any of his movies are his best work. And you're like, yes, of course. But it's interesting to watch that movie where it's just like so polished and in some ways like leaps and bounds ahead of Shaun of the Dead. Like you can tell he just got so much better and more refined at his craft than to see him kind of like leave his childhood behind to go work with this like completely random group of new kids that he's working with for Scott Pilgrim. And then to take that context and see him go back to revisit his old friends. But he has like a reverence. It's like he went to summer camp and he learned something about himself. And he's like saying goodbye to his friends for like the last time. Coming back for like one more to go at like the Mm -hmm. Cornetto trilogy. And I feel like that makes it even more savory when you watch The World's End now. Because you're like, oh yeah, like he's kind of like starting to stretch his wings. He understands that he can't just keep making... The Cornetto trilogy forever. It's a trilogy. It has to end. He kind of knows what he can do now. He's expanding. He's growing. Let me give this one last film to the Cornetto trilogy. And it just feels like very, like, reverent of itself and very, like, nice. It's like a very nice gift he gave to, like, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost to be like, old friends. I'm becoming too big. I'm a superstar now. (laughs) Like, yeah. well, I'm gonna go do so other Simon things. Peg, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we, we love each other. We will always have this, but we're becoming superstars. Like Hollywood is like now really accepting us. So it's cool. No, I think couldn't couldn't have put it any better myself. That's one of the fun things about I. I personally love jumping into uh, filmographies as rewatches. Uh, I think it just it adds an extra layer on there. It's one of the reasons, like, I want to do this with you. One of the reasons we're doing John Carpenter with Roddy. Uh, we did Christopher Nolan uh, side-by-side over drinkers once we were doing the Nolan Batman movies with Batarang. You know, it's like there's there's something to be gained, a little extra. Even if you've seen all the movies in somebody's filmography, kind of watching them in order or being aware of their placement in the filmography that kind of gives you some perspective gives you a little context of like where they're at and what they're doing and what they're trying to do and where they're going that I think is a lot of fun. And I mean, this is, this is what's really cool about like this point in right stuff is like, now we get to really kind of start jumping, jumping into very different types of things, you know, not that the Cornetto trilogy are very similar movies, but they, they are in a way. And they they have a lot of the same really good things going for them which is why we made them into one episode and then we covered space to really kind of just show where that kind of came from and now we are going to be hitting these movies which were made or maybe not made that are kind of utilizing Edgar Wright's ideas of where he wants to go like where he wants to grow as a filmmaker and I think that the direction that it ends up landing with his last film Baby Driver is a very good one And if his new movie Soho is any indication, it looks like he's going even kind of further into that. But Soho looks very Scott Pilgrim-y. Yeah. Which I'm really into. Yeah, I I think I'm notorious in the story screen family for not doing a lot of research before things Mm -hmm. come out. I'm not super big. I don't go like trailer hunting. If you guys like shoot me a trailer, I'll usually check it out. But that's not like a thing that I do. I don't do a lot of pre-research before going into a film. But yeah, from what we see so far, just even the color palette alone for Last Night in Soho seems very bright and like into comic it. booky. Yeah, I'm into it. But yeah, I think uh, what you were saying about filmography for directors, I feel like 
Edgar Wright and Taika Waititi had very like similar journeys because they made like three or four films in like their home country with like people that they had known for a very long time. And then I feel like with Taika getting Ragnarok, like Thor Ragnarok, that was kind of like Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim, like something completely different, something with possibly a higher budget, um, a lot of more action involved, even though Hot Fuzz and The World's End also has a lot of action, even Shaun of the Dead. But um, and then you get like after this uh, with Edgar Wright going into Baby Driver it's very similar to like Taika going with Jojo Rabbit, like something that's like very heavily ingrained in the set pieces and Mm -hmm. the subject matter. It's just interesting. I think they have like very similar journeys and I like them both a lot. Yeah. With Jojo and baby driver too. Like those were projects that they had been working on for a long time. Like Taika had said, like, I want, I wanted to make, uh, this book into a movie and baby driver goes all the way back before even like the Cornetto trilogy. Like this is an idea that uh, Edgar Wright had been kind of like uh, marinating for quite a while. And you can see a little bit of it in like the blue song uh, music video that he did. Like it's, it's really fucking, it's really fucking neat, man. Uh, But that's not what's next. But before we wrap up, did you have anything else you want to say on Scott Pilgrim? I know we could talk forever about this thing. No, I actually, I'm not going to lie. I was a little, not nervous to get on the mic to talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world, but it's kind of something that every once in a while I'm like, what new information or what new conversation can Burge and I have about a movie that we've talked about so many times? And also, we're both like pretty well versed in what the reception to Scott Pilgrim was. I mean, me, I didn't know about the money. But just talking. Yeah, that's all. That's weird nerd <laughs> shit that I have. No, that's again. great. That's great. But yeah, I feel like we actually brought a lot of like new conversation. We had different things to talk about than I think we've ever had mm-hmm. before. Um, we're getting to the point where, yeah, we might know a thing or two about Scott Pilgrim versus the world, which we're is very sc- cool. Scholars. Yeah. Scholars. Scholars of it. Yeah. And this is definitely one I'll ask you then before we wrap up. Yeah. So you mentioned the Brat Pack earlier. Um, yeah. I would imagine... Those films really resonate with me. I don't think the mm. fact that those films were like shot in the 80s and I was born in the late 80s and I watched them like in the later 90s, those still felt very relevant to me. I still very heavily identified with those films because John Hughes is just great. But how do you feel uh, about Scott Pilgrim? Because I was saying it hit me like at the right time. I was approaching my early 20s. These characters were in their early 20s. I grew up in, like, the Hot Topic era where I had a bunch of, like, wristbands, those, like, you know, cloth wristbands. I didn't play guitar. I had no use for that. I didn't need to, like, put guitar picks in there. But that was, like, my style that I wore. I felt like it was very related to me. And even when I get older, I have a hard time saying, like, do I relate to this movie because I lived it or just because it's relatable? Do you think that this is a film that in 10 years' time a kid can watch it and be like, Yes, I get this. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I, I think because it does really have a lot of uh late nineties, early aughts mentality to it, which I think that's like kind of where it's set uh from the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's kind of already got it's already got a little age on it as far as like the the time period. And I 
and the cult status of the uh, of the movie just kind of speaks for itself too, where people are really into that kind of typical attitude and that kind of that Toronto music scene vibe of like the late nineties, early aughts. Like, I think that that's something that the movie has that is very wild that it came from, you know, uh, a, a, a Britain. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a very weird combination of a bunch of different things. It, it, it stars uh, mainly a, uh, Americans, uh, some Canadians. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an odd little hodgepodge of like how movie magic works, you know, uh, from my own point of view, I saw Scott Pilgrim when I was um, uh, in the middle of a... I was actually very... I don't talk about this that much, actually. Um, I was in a relationship with someone that had a ticking clock on it because they were going to go back home. Um, and we extended it, or rather she extended it as much as she could, but then eventually had to go back to Seattle because she was working here uh, as part of like a kind of uh, work corps kind of thing. I had just gotten out of the military. I didn't really know anybody new, and we bumped into each other at a party, both like Buffy. Boom, we were dating, but we knew that she was eventually going to go back to Seattle, and I wasn't going to go to Seattle. I'd been there. Don't fucking like it. <laughs> uh, so... And it was always the possibility that I could go, but eventually we were just like, no, you know what, let's just do this. And we broke it off and she left. And it was always kind of like we had seen this movie together because we had been dating at that time. And then she left uh, probably about, I don't know, six or so months after that. Um, And it was really weird because I always felt like am I, I'm like the ex that like we didn't have a problem Nobody broke up with one another. It We just had to split because, like, the world wasn't right. And so I was like, there's there's always something in my head that kind of brings me back to that feeling of when I was, like, you know, 24 years old. And I was in this relationship that was probably maybe a little bit too – the surroundings around it were just a little bit too mature for a 24-year-old. Where it's like you really just have to accept the fact that this probably just isn't going to work out due to no fault of yours or the others. It's just not going to work out. And – having a movie that was one of the few movies that we saw together be that uh, I am constantly reminded when I think of the movie of that relationship and of like the idea of exes and what they are. And I always love that Lucas Lee was the one that was cheated on. And like, so you kind of feel for him a little bit where he was kind of this introvert drama kid. And due to this relationship, he kind of just became this kind of extrovert asshole. And that's what allowed him to become kind of famous and successful and also just super cocky where he's the only one that do- that doesn't seek out Scott like he just bumps into him while he's shooting a movie and in the in the comics too he even is like if you pay me like I'll just say like I lost you don't even have to fight me blah 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 like he's he's kind of like a dickhead like that so there's I like that there's different angles to the exes cuz I think exes are something that we all have most of us most everybody has exes and they're very unique little stories in our heads that we very rarely bring up because, you know, once you're with somebody else, there's really no reason to kind of dig up that dirty laundry. It could probably do more harm than good. Uh, But yeah, I think that's something that's really special about the movie that I think anybody of any age at any time can kind of connect with, which is we all have exes. And when we, the, the reason that it's so important and powerful when we meet somebody that we want to spend time with and commit ourselves to is not only are they taking our baggage, but we're taking their baggage. Mm-hmm. And it's all about figuring out how to be able to handle all that. 
Very well said. Yeah. 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 Seattle sucks. Yeah. I mean, really, you just kind of have to forget the end of the film because Ramona is still very much fucked up. It's like, yeah, good for you, Scott. You got over it. Now, Ramona, Mm -hmm. that's like, she's got some work to put in. Like, you guys have work to put in now. But he can help. He's going to help her out. Yeah. He's going to help her. Let's give it another try. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that, (laughs) I think that's about good. We're getting a little long on this one, but that's fine. It's one of our favorite movies. We had to talk about it. Yeah, Uh, definitely. Next up, I'm really excited about all these ones. All these ones are going to be great. Uh, We've got next up, we're going to be talking about um, Ant-Man. We're going to be talking about the film Ant-Man that actually was made. Um, And we are going to be by Peyton Reed. Mm -hmm. And we are also going to be talking about as much stuff as we can of Edgar Wright's uh, involvement in that. What happened? We're going to be separating and kind of digging through some news and stuff. I'm really excited because I know just the kind of general idea of it a little, maybe a little bit more than the average schmo, but I definitely don't know everything. So I'm kind of excited to dig into that a little bit. And we're also going to use that opportunity to kind of talk about uh, some of the other things in Edgar Wright's uh, filmography, such as some music videos. And it's going to be a fun little jam packed episode of just kind of hanging and talking about one of the worst things that can happen in the movie industry, which is... Too many cooks in a kitchen. Creative differences. Yeah, Um, because as I said with Scott Pilgrim, um, the fact that it was Edgar Wright, that's not what drew me to the film. It was the actual content of the film. Uh, The fact that Edgar Wright was attached to Ant-Man. It was Edgar Wright and Paul Rudd. That's what made me see Ant-Man. I wouldn't have seen Ant-Man in theaters. If, like, it wasn't Paul Rudd or Edgar Wright attached. Because I'm not that, like, Marvel enthusiast where I'm like, I must see them all in theaters. But, yeah, definitely Edgar Wright was, like, the big draw for me for this film. And so Mm -hmm. when that fell apart, what a weird thing that we're going to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's actually really good, like, kind of going into having covered all of these things. And the things that do pop up in the movie are very much, like, you can see the Edgar Wrightness. It's why he is one of the only people that can do what he does. You can kind of see where his DNA is in that. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, And then, of course, we also have Baby Driver after that that we'll be hitting. And we are also currently trying to track down a copy of uh, Edgar Wright's uh, first feature-length film, A Fistful of Fingers from 1995, (laughs) Western comedy. I've never seen it. It's very hard to get a hold of. I have reached my my, my little... uh, I almost said like my little tentacles, like (laughs) my feelers are out and I'm going to try and see if we can secure a copy to be able to try and talk about it. Uh, So we'll see. We still got, uh, you know, loads of fun, right stuff to talk about. Yeah, you can clearly hear listeners that uh, we're going to be grasping at straws to keep talking about Edgar Wright. <laughs> like once yeah, we get we to the end go. of the we filmography, just, we're going to be like, well, we can just start let's, over. Let's we'll just talk like, about okay, this and now we're... one music video for like an hour and yeah. a half. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, but uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, thank you for being an exclusive member. Uh, we really appreciate it. It helps us a lot to, to be able to... Uh, uh, have some money at the end of this that we can use to make things really better for our listeners and our readers online, as well as support us. Um, but uh, if you're listening to this, I won't give you the big spiel. StoryScreenBeacon.com. Go there. Read some more stuff. Uh, go to the merchandise store. We got some cool tote bags and mugs. Buying those supports us directly as well. We would love it if you did that. And uh, 
Bernadette, thanks for joining me again and talking about debt rat stuff. Happy to do it. Happy to be here. Rock and roll. All right. We'll see you next time. All right. Bye.